Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thank you so much for joining us. Our interview guest today is Hanif Abdurraqib, a New York Times bestselling author, MacArthur Genius Grant winner, and all-around soccer guy. Really enjoyed this conversation. Think you will, too. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one today, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the news in the soccer world. We'll have Hanif Abdurraqib in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you? Doing all right, sir. Back from the Super Bowl and ready to get back into the other football. You had a really productive week out there, it seems like. Yeah, we uh, we had Levitard's show. We're doing the live show there all week. And then you kind of stay after and do more interviews and grab people and all that. Uh, met Zach Ertz, so I didn't get a chance to ask him about Julie, so I, I failed the podcast there. <laughs> And uh, then we kind of go out into L.A. And, uh, and try and experience as much as we can and meet a bunch of people. So, yeah, we were super busy, but super fun as well. Super, super, super bowl. Like, it's... Uh, <laughs> did you, Are you bummed that you didn't stay out for the game? Yeah, it was just one of those things where uh, we couldn't get... So, like, we got like credentials but not with a seat inside the stadium it was like you can stay in the media center in the bowels of the stadium and it's like that's not that's not really a way to experience a game so just decided like all right come back home do the super bowl party thing and maybe we'll uh maybe we'll get into another super bowl somewhere down the line but didn't get a seat in the stadium so uh, unfortunately couldn't stay you know i i've never been to a super bowl so one of these days i like to go preferably when the chiefs are in it uh, just to get a sense of what the scene is like and also to compare that to what it's like for like the Champions League final and mm-hmm. see how to compare and contrast. I've only been to one Champions League final before in 2013 in London and I'm trying to decide if it's something I should make a priority for my website to go to the Champions League final every year because it's on the one hand, it's a cool scene. Lots of people are there. It's also really expensive to to go there i assume the same is probably true for the super bowl and like the champions league final this year is in uh st petersburg russia and that presents you know you have to get a visa and all that stuff and i'd love to go to st petersburg someday though i didn't get there at the 2018 world cup but like i'm trying to decide what do you think should i make it a like a priority to go to the champions league final every year i mean i i don't know what your travel budget is but if you want to go to the champions league final then i would certainly uh, resoundingly endorse that <laughs> i'd imagine you get inside the stadium and uh yeah it, if anything were like I, i'm a fan of events where like the entire kind of media culture around the sport just gathers in one place. Like there's so much to kind of grab from there and meet people. Like the Super Bowl was one of those experiences. Like, all right, anyone who covers football on a national basis is going to be there and perhaps even further beyond that. So it was just cool to meet people like that. It's why I really enjoyed going to MLS Cup. It's why I'd like to go to MLS All-Star this year. Like any any events where the entire media from a sport gathers in one place. I just think that's an enriching experience. So uh, for sure, I would do that. I'll think about it. It's a it's a pretty big chunk of the budget, though. But um, yeah, World Cup, same way. I love going to the World Cup, seeing journalist friends from around the world, uh, sometimes for the first time in four years. And looking forward to doing that later this mm-hmm. year. Hopefully the U.S. will be there with me. And... You know, every year we also, well, every World Cup, this won't be the case this year, we host a 4th of July party and invite media from around the world. And it's kind of a fun thing uh, during a World Cup. 
might not quite be the same for Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. um, which will be taking place during the World Cup this year. But we will try and find a turkey in Qatar. I think it's doable. Um, anyway, let's jump into the weekend. And let's start with the Club World Cup final because an American, Christian Pulisic, is a world champion along mm -hmm. with Chelsea, which beat Palmeiras 2-1 in extra time. Not a great game, but sort of a dramatic game in a sense. At the end, it goes to extra time. Chelsea gets the penalty. Kai Havertz converts. And as expected, the European champion is now the world champion. Yeah, and you have Chelsea in that game, I thought struggled at times. I thought Palmeiras kind of came out to play. We kind of mentioned in the build-up to that one that Palmeiras were not a team to be taken lightly, that they've won Libertadores, you know, two years running, that they've got a strong squad, even though uh, they've had to kind of sell off some of their better players because any team would, but they were really competitive in this game. I thought it gave Chelsea some real trouble. Again, I think Chelsea showed some of their frailties, I guess you can say, in front of goal or just in terms of you don't know where their next goal is coming from. And so you saw that in that game, but then they get the late penalty on, on the handball, which I always feel bad for defenders when you're a yard away from the handball. Like, what are you supposed to do? But in by the laws of the game, that was a handball. And Kai Havertz put away the penalty and they're world champions, which I saw in the aftermath of it, like Craig Burley, for instance, had to go at them for like over-celebrating the Club World Cup. I actually think like being crowned world champions just because all the best teams in Europe aren't there. Like I think that's a really big deal. Like and it, and it really hit me when Liverpool won it and they put like the gold badge on the front of their shirt. Like it's a really big deal to be champions of the world. I think this should be a much bigger competition than it is. And that's a really significant trophy to have won for Chelsea. I totally agree with you. And and I agree with a lot of what Craig Burley says. That was one of the more lame tweets I've ever seen from him because like Man City, as Max Bredos pointed out, would have gladly traded places with Chelsea and been in that position, having won the UEFA Champions League and then winning the FIFA World Cup uh, for clubs. So I think you and I are both in agreement on this, that the World Club Championship just needs to be a bigger deal. And I actually did more research after we had talked about this, you and I, a few days ago. FIFA had actually gotten to the point in 2019 where the FIFA Council had approved a 2014 Club World Cup in China for 2021. And it would have, you know, they even had the number of slots per confederation for it. And just from, from a format perspective, it looked great. You know, this was going to be a summer tournament replacing the Confederations Cup. And yes, the European clubs were squawking about whether they were going to participate or not. I think they would have. And eventually COVID causes it not to happen. But FIFA still talks about wanting to do this. They just need to get it on the calendar. And so clearly on the men's side, they're moving in this direction. Where my biggest issues are with FIFA is they haven't even started yet to organize a club women's World Cup, which would be great. I think it would actually be profitable uh, and it would be something that women's soccer would really embrace around the world. And instead, we're sort of left with these exhibition type WICC events, which are fine, uh, but a FIFA competitive Club World Cup for women would be absolutely fantastic. And Brian Strauss at Sports Illustrated did a really cool thing this week. He actually put it together in a March Madness style bracket and graphically showed really what this 
FIFA Club World Cup means, because if you extend the bracket out to all the confederation tournaments, whether it's UEFA Champions League or CONCACAF Champions League or Asian Champions League, teams have earned their way in the biggest of ways to get to this point. And it's kind of idiotic of FIFA not to graphically present it in that way because they should be doing everything they can to show people why this matters or should matter. And I'm surprised that they don't put it in other places in the world. They don't put it in better places in the calendar where they would be spotlighted. I think like maybe like after the festive fixtures in in, in late December in the Premier League, you know, but like in and around that first FA Cup weekend might be a good spot just because, uh, you know, you can send some teams into like a warm climate. Doesn't necessarily have to be the UAE or the Middle East. It could be in Los Angeles. It could be in, in the Southern Hemisphere where it's warm. Like there are plenty of places where you can put the Club World Cup where it would be kind of on show. It, should, it really is dependent on FIFA kind of saying this is important. And I do think you might need to bring more teams in it just because right now with only the one European team, I think they've won every Club World Cup since 2012. It really, at the moment, seems like a coronation for the European team, even if they have to work for it. But yeah, I mean, this has immense competition. also has like the, the capacity to grow the club game in other areas of the world. Right now, the the club game is so European-centric that if there was kind of a more democratized competition where, you know, if you go to the Club World Cup, you can make a ton of money and bring it back to your home country and you're kind of moving the interest in the game all over the world, I think that would be great. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting that FIFA just doesn't really seem to put a lot of effort behind this. And I guess you can really say that that's probably because of money that they have to put effort in uh, to make the money. Whereas in the FIFA World Cup situation, the national team World Cup, it's just a cash register and you just put more teams in it and get more, you know, more rights fees. And that like that, that's where the work goes. Christian Pulisic, by the way, really interesting game, did not start, but then he comes on in the 32nd minute when Mason Mount goes off injured. Mm-hmm. And Pulisic's versatility, again, on display here, he comes on and basically is playing in a number 10 role centrally. Mm-hmm. And very rarely ever does that for Chelsea. And I wish he would get that opportunity more, but this was a big opportunity for him. And I thought he was pretty dangerous at times on the ball. Got a couple shots off, was taking free kicks and corners for quite a while in this game. And that's partly due to just who else Chelsea didn't have on the field. Then he gets moved out wide left when Timo Werner comes in and uh, for Lukaku. And then they trade places and Werner ends up wide left and Pulisic finishes up centrally again. And obviously, it would have been great if Pulisic had scored on one of his shots. Uh, I was wondering if he might be the one to take the penalty when Havertz comes on to take the game winner. And, you know, like, it's pretty cool, even if he didn't have some huge moment in this game, to see Pulisic have a significant role in the game and have another big trophy that he gets to take a picture with afterward. Yeah, I mean, look, any time that Christian Pulisic can be both world champion and, uh, you know, a European champion. Like, th- these are accomplishments that American players have never put in before. In terms of, like, his performance in the game, like, I do think that he was playing with a bit more confidence and kind of endeavor in the game, as you mentioned, in that central position. And you saw him getting after it. I will say, though, the one thing that I've started to notice is he does get kicked a lot. 
And some of right. it is like, obviously, his immense skill. Like, I do think that it is a testament to Christian Pulisic that he is often targeted by opposition defenders and is the subject of physical treatment. However, it could be part of the reason why he gets hurt a lot. And I do think that there are moments where he can avoid them. It's like, in some ways, he has to engage the defender and then create the moment. But I think if you create the moment and then get off the ball so you don't get kicked, that allows you to have a little bit more longevity. It was just something that I noticed in watching the game. Is I think he was probably fouled like five or six times. And while that, like, in, in when they won when they won the quarterfinal, semifinal tie against Real Madrid last year in the Champions League, and, like, there was, in both legs, he was fouled a ton. It was like, oh, man, look at him. Like, they can't deal with him. They've got to kick him. And while that is also true, I also think that, like, take care of yourself, man. Like, don't get hurt by just over and over again getting fouled. I guess, but, like, a couple of things I would say about that. One, during the game, I remain frustrated. I can't find an in-game statistical source to tell me which players have been fouled the most Mm -hmm. in a game because I think that's a very good measure of how dangerous you are in the game. And I think, I don't know, I can try and find this somewhere, that Pulisic was fouled more than any player in this game. I Mm -hmm. may be wrong, but at least in the attacking third, I felt like he was fouled more than anybody else. The other thing is, I understand what you're saying, but like that's a huge part of his danger and what Mm -hmm. he brings to the game which is the ability to create set piece chances on free kicks within this, you know, you know, not too far distance from the goal. And so that's a big part of, of Christian Pulisic's game. At the same time, you don't want to see him get hurt. And so it's a, it's a push pull, right? But like, if he's not, it's one of those things where if he's not drawing fouls, He's not maybe doing as much as he could be doing. I'm looking at right now the so Fotmob has this in the in the player stats. We have to go one by one. Uh, so I'm looking at like all of the front seven guys for Chelsea, and no one had more than two other than Pulisic, who was fouled four times. So even despite coming on as a sub, he led the game in getting fouled. So yeah, I mean you're right. It it, it is definitely a push and pull. I just wonder if maybe you just get off the ball slightly, like the very moment before you would get fouled. And then, you know, and then like you can avoid the challenge or leap out of the way or whatever. I I, I just, I, I, I fear for him getting hurt. And I also think that like maybe there are times where easy balls are, are open quicker and he can get the ball moving quicker in the attack as opposed to always needing to be about engaging defenders. Like there are moments where, as you talked about on the Landon pod, on the Landon Wall and Witty podcast uh, covering the U.S. men's national team, like. There are moments where you are just a cog in the machine and just be a cog in the machine, and then there are moments where you're the star and be the star, and I sometimes wonder if he recognizes the the right moment for either. It is interesting, the interview that Pulisic did this week with ESPN, which was a very hit-or-miss interview because I don't care what he thinks about being called Captain America. I really don't, and that's a waste of an interview question. (laughs) But there was some other good stuff in the interview about where Polisic talks about when he's with the U.S. team, including in the most recent games, and feels like he needs to be the savior of the team. And he said, what I've realized is, or need to realize is, this team doesn't need saving. And that's a, it, it sounds like that might be a conversation he's had with Greg Berhalter, and it's good for him to recognize that. And I get why... He might feel that way coming into the U.S. team because he's the biggest name on Mm -hmm. it and wants to make a difference. But in some ways, it's better if he, instead of trying to do hero ball, actually 
trust his teammates a little bit more because he does have some very good teammates. So if he's recognizing that, I think that's a good thing. It, it also plays into, because I'm a language guy, we've seen the word savior associated with American soccer over the years about like, is so-and-so going to be the savior of American soccer? Sometimes it's like in the context of, is David Beckham going to be the savior of MLS? American soccer doesn't need saving. So <laughs> I would be perfectly happy if we never saw the word savior ever again attached to anything in American soccer. Uh, that, that That is a very strong take. Like, I, I, I agree with you that it doesn't need saving, but doesn't it need its first ever generational star and talent? Because, like, like Landon Donovan was absolutely a guy who lifted the U.S. to heights and never been before, but, like, on a club level, was not, like, the best player on one of the very best teams. And while Christian Pulisic has gotten there sometimes, he has not completely lived up to the best player on the best team and one of the, like, like that kind of high-level competition, even like what Luka Modric is to Croatia. Just like something like that where it's like someone who is in that conversation is one of the very best players in the world. The U.S. still hasn't really had that. I agree with you. At this point, given the amount of talent that's going to Europe, given where the sport is in this country, it doesn't need saving. But it still does kind of need like that one very clearly best player ever kind of feeling. I am with you in saying that American men's soccer has never had a superstar on a global level, which I consider to be a player on a UEFA Champions League contending team who is one of the one or two most dangerous threats on that team. And it can't be a goalkeeper. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, like Pulisic is not that at this point on Chelsea. He's the closest an American has mm -hmm. come on the men's side to being that. So I think it's possible to say all of that, but I have a just a categorical revulsion to the idea of the word savior connected to anything in American soccer because it suggests that it one saving. thing is what is necessary to make soccer matter in the United States. I would say soccer already matters in the United States. It doesn't need saving. And there's a bunch of different factors, not just one, that are going into making soccer bigger in the United States. So if you say the word savior in any context next to me, I might punch you really hard in the shoulder. <laughs> All right. Duly noted. I will not be saying anything involving the word savior unless it's in another context. <laughs> so let's move forward here. We have uh, finally confirmation officially that Matt Turner will be joining Arsenal this summer from the New England Revolution, and it, it's nothing new, right? We've been hearing this for a while, so it wasn't a surprise, but like, I just want to reiterate, what a great story. One of the best stories in the history of American soccer, I think, when you have a player who, for the longest time, wasn't even a starter on his college team, wasn't drafted in MLS, goes to the New England Revolution as like their bottom string goalkeeper, wins the job, becomes this freak shot stopper and U.S. national team starter, and now is off to Arsenal. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, and statistically, you know, one of the best goalkeepers ever in the history of MLS, and this player who is, you know, and really also rose at a time in New England where they were going in through a really dark period. Like, you think of how bad they were when he first took over. Like, in some ways, you could have looked at his one-loss record as a, as a starting goalkeeper and gone... 
you know, maybe, you know, we need to bring in another goalkeeper when then Bruce Arena takes over and keeps him as the goalkeeper, kind of validating his talents. But yeah, from beginning to end, and I've heard people talk about, like, okay, he's going to a team where Aaron Ramsdale is very clearly solidified as the starter for Arsenal. He's going in to be a number two. Hopefully that involves playing some European football next year for Arsenal, whether that's in the Europa League or the Champions League. Uh, but either way, like, he is going to be a backup, but that's still a remarkable storybook ending to the story because Matt Turner going to a club like Arsenal is a lot different than him going to the sixth best team in Belgium and going and playing every week. And it honestly might be better for his career if he went to the sixth best team in Belgium and started every week. But man, him being the Arsenal goalkeeper, one, you know, and you don't wish injury upon anyone, but it's a possibility that Aaron Ramsdale gets hurt and he becomes a starter and he plays really well or he plays really well in cup games and earns a move to another European team. Whatever the case may be, like he's obviously got a huge potential now that he is in this Arsenal team. And what a way for him to carry on with his career. The one question you have from a U.S. point of view is, now you have two backups at, quote, big six European clubs. Um, are are you going to have enough game experience between the two of them as you head into uh, the, the last window? Although, I, you know, Turner will still be in New England and heading into the last window. And if you make Qatar, um, do you have enough in those positions in terms of game experience week to week in order to have a strong goalkeeping group? Yeah, and that's a great question, and I get those concerns. I also just feel like, I just feel a little like Matt Turner's storybook ride isn't over, and I Mm -hmm. think there's a decent chance maybe Ramsdale will get hurt, uh, I certainly, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but like I certainly have a greater hope now that they finish in the top four, um, and that that will allow for more games to be played and more opportunities potentially for Turner to play, you would certainly would hope that it would be like a Man City style situation where Zach Steffen gets cup games. Um, and, you know, you wish he was playing more, obviously, but he's getting to play some. And, you know, I, I think if he gets opportunities and shows really well, there's going to be interest coming in for Matt Turner from other European teams to be the starter because I I don't see him losing his abilities to be a freak shot stopper and now that he's made this move you know an even bigger audience uh, will end up seeing him play at some point I think so congratulations to Matt Turner I'm sure he's getting a giant raise out of all of this too the only concern would be if you're talking about a future move coming at some point by the time he goes to Arsenal he'll be 28 years old and so that's generally not someone who you're paying a ton of money for or has a tremendous sell-on not value. Not with goalkeepers. Goal, goal, goalkeepers play until they're 40, man. No, for sure. Like, like He will continue playing for a long time. He doesn't have a lot of tread on the tires either, given that you know he was in college until he was 21 and didn't really start his professional career in earnest until he was 24, 25, or 23, 24. But still, like I, I do think that like in terms of the world transfer market, if I say like you're gonna buy a 31 year old goalkeeper, like you're probably not spending a ton of money on that player, or you're not saying, all right, we're building around this guy. Like you kind of want like a lot of teams tend to pick players where that's like they're there for 10 years. And if you think about like the stability 
at that position for a long time. Like Petr Cech was at Chelsea for forever. David De Gea has been at Manchester United for forever. Ederson will, you know, be at Manchester City for a while. Like th- those are those tend to be like ten year signings. So it'll be hard to kind of crack that group of players. I would imagine. Yeah, I'd be curious though to see a list of of top transfer fees paid for goalkeepers over the years, and not even top sort of mid level transfer fees, mm-hmm. and see what the ages were of those players compared to non goalkeepers. That's fair. Um, because I would think, because the goalkeeper position is just different. Though, Turner's a guy who relies so much on reactions and shot-stopping ability, I do wonder if that makes him a different consideration to other types of goalkeepers as well. So that's we'll have to get our goalkeeper experts on here at some point to discuss that. Let's move to Italy, because this is by far the best title race now in any of the top five European leagues. And I'm going to raise my hand and say that I was at fault a few weeks ago for saying that the Italian race was over and that (laughs) I was bummed out about that and that Inter was going to run away with things because Inter is not running away with things. They did get a point at Napoli this weekend and remain a point ahead of Napoli, but Milan goes into first place and granted Inter has a game in hand, but you've got three teams right at the top there You've got Juventus, much improved in January with their transfers sort of lurking and may get into this three-team race to make it a four-team race for the title. And every week, it seems like there is there are big games in Serie A that are some of the biggest games of the weekend. Yeah, I mean, this weekend it was one versus three uh, with Napoli and Inter that finished 1-1. Inter with Milan winning at home against Sampdoria go to top of the table. And so you exit the weekend with your three-team race at the top of the league. Uh, we're recording this before Juventus play Atalanta, but it, you know if Juventus win, they're within seven points. If they don't, then you know Milan Inter Napoli separated by just two points. And so every week there is going to be huge matches for all these teams left to play. And that's like when we yearn for title races. This is why when you have three teams separated by two points, every result. Every weekend is massive. So Milan go away to Salernitana next weekend. Like, if they don't win, then they could very easily relinquish their lead and never get it back. Because Inter can, you know, win at home against Asuelo, then be away and, you know, win their game in hand whenever they play it. And all of a sudden, you know, Milan is, is has fallen off the pace. So... That drama is why we love a title race so much. Uh, next weekend, uh, there aren't huge matches in the title race, but you have Lazio Napoli coming up uh, later in the month. Uh, you have Inter away at Genoa later. In the, like, like there, there's just every weekend a game that's really important towards this title race. So yeah, uh, we'll definitely, as as we've said in previous weeks, continue to keep our eyes on Italy almost first and foremost when you're looking at the European fixtures on a weekend. A couple of things I would add quickly about that. Lazio keep an eye on because they're on a great run. Mm. And like Juventus, at least theoretically, could get back into the race. Don't I don't think Lazio will, but like they're just playing great soccer right now. Um, also, I'm going to Italy on Tuesday night. Go on. Where 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 are we off yes. to? Where are we off to? You're going. To- uh, I, I I I will mention specifics publicly later in the week, or if you want to follow me on social media. But uh, I may be recording our next podcast if we do a midweek soccer talk. Uh, from Italy. So I'll have more details then, but uh, very excited to get out in the world. I got a big uh, two-week European trip coming up starting this week uh, for future written stories for grantwall.com. Speaking of games in hand, 
by the way, because Inter does have a game in hand. I am being reminded when I see Tottenham Hotspur lately that sometimes we just assume that when a team has games in hand, and especially if they're at home against supposedly lesser opponents, we shouldn't just assume they're going to get three points in every one of those games. Tottenham now has lost two straight at home in the league, has lost three straight overall in the league. And this team that very recently I thought was kind of a lock to make the top four is very much not a lock to make the top four. And that top four race actually has a lot of games in hand in it. Uh, West Ham, <laughs> uh, after an away draw at Leicester on 41, on 25 played. Man United are on 40 after another draw on 24 played. But Arsenal are on 22 played. Wolves are on 23 played. And Tottenham are on 22 played. So there's a huge imbalance. And honestly, when you look at those five teams... Like you said, you're not figuring three points for the games in hand. You know, any three points that those teams can get is a huge addition because they don't really look that consistent. They don't really look that strong. And so, I mean, Arsenal, especially after, you know, basically selling or, you know, getting rid of all the players that they didn't really want anymore, but not really replacing them. Like, they don't have a ton of depth in that team. So, three, they're two or three injuries away from being in a really difficult state in, in, in the run into the season. But you look at all over... You know, like in, in that Champions League race, like there's games in hand, but you don't trust the consistency of those teams. So all over the world, as kind of games are being canceled by COVID, you cannot bank on anyone getting a win just because of how the fixture looks. I thought it was kind of interesting. Antonio Conte, after another loss at home here, um, was like basically saying, I'm used to fighting for first place. So this is odd for me to be like talking about fourth place. Like, I love it when these coaches, like, just Mourinho does this all the time, too, about, well, look at me. I have had this, this history, and so I am not used to doing this I'm before. slumming like, it here in the Europa League. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> get over yourself and win games, would you please? Please. Because right now, Antonio Conte should really be hoping he finishes in the top four because... That doesn't seem like it might be in the cards at this point. He also like took the job when like Spurs were ninth. So like what you expect to compete for the title when you took over the job in the middle of the season <laughs> from a guy who was a giant disaster? Like, no, this is this is where you're gonna be. And like he got the new manager bounce, but they've lost three in a row. And I would imagine that, you know, like I like the complaints about the quality of the squad are coming and and the depth and all this stuff, but like you've you've gotta coach your way out of it. And it's it's been surprising, like kind of the the skid that they've hit here. But Wolves were value for money, like they ran away with that game. You watch them in the first twenty five minutes, like it was difficult for Spurs to get the ball off of them. Like Wolves are really good, and they've actually been on a good run of form. They've won four of their last five, so uh, they're they actually find themselves in the Champions League race. With when like at the beginning of the season, their issue was they played well, but they didn't get enough results. They've not put together enough results, and and I think Bruno Lage is probably. Uh, the manager that has not gotten nearly enough credit or any credit uh, for the work that he's done because he kind of has done it fairly quietly. It's also kind of nice to see Raul Jimenez getting back into the form that he had been with uh, before his injury with Wolves. And uh, I fully expect him to be uh, in form when Mexico mm. hosts the U.S. on March 24th. Prefer he weren't. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, are are you coming to Mexico City? 
for that game? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. We've got to we've got to figure out some some logistics at Metal Arc Media in order to to, to maybe figure this out. But uh, I'm, I'm I'm actually I'm going to add that right now. My list of things to do this week is uh, make the call about Azteca and see if maybe we can get some budget to fly over there. Because I'm about to write a column on this for anyone out there who is a U.S. soccer fan person. This is a bucket list event, seeing a World Cup qualifier in the Azteca between the U.S. and Mexico. And the one that's taking place on March 24th is going to be the last World Cup qualifier between these two teams, definitely until the 2030 cycle, and maybe ever, just because World Cup qualifying is going to look completely different when it's a 48-team tournament. And so if... Like, I made my travel plans this week for the Azteca. I am just fired up and ready to play this game right now. But over the next couple of weeks, I think the anticipation is only going to grow. So I do hope you're going to be there because uh, the night before party for the American Outlaws in Mexico City is absolutely fantastic, too. Oh, man. You're like you're you're really laying it on thick here. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do as much as I can to be out there. I will I will definitely be at the game in Orlando just because it's a quick drive uh, from where I live in Miami. So I'll definitely be there for that one. Um, but uh, but but Azteca, we've we've got some work to do. Working on it. Fair enough. But yeah, the the Orlando game's gonna be great too because that's the one where you not only sort of expect but really hope the U.S. qualifies for the World Cup because it's not likely to happen in the Azteca given the current point situation. A lot of stuff would need to happen. And you really don't want to be having qualification waiting to happen in the last game at Costa Rica. So Orlando, just as good probably as the Azteca. But hey, go to both if you can. I know that gets expensive, but uh, would be great to see you there. Um Speaking of other things I'm really excited about, Champions League. UEFA Champions League is back this week. For me, it's uh, the unofficial start of spring is our two-month wait is over. We're going to finally have the round of 16 start. Uh, This week, we've got PSG-Real Madrid, which is obviously a great matchup. Sporting Man City. Inter-Liverpool, which should be really good. And Salzburg-Bayern, which... You know, on paper is is huge advantage to Bayern, but it'll be fun to see Brendan Aronson, who is likely to be starting in there in that uh, that game and scored on Friday, getting a really big opportunity. And Bayern's coming off a, a very surprising four two loss in the Bundesliga to Bochum. Yeah, that that was a that was a stunning result. But yeah, I mean. Champions League is back. I, it was one of those things that it actually kind of snuck up on me just because we've had so much football, particularly in midweeks with, you know, makeups and and you have the you have the January international break that I've kind of like my my equilibrium has been thrown off in a weird way. But man, to kick it off, PSG Real Madrid from the off is as good of a round of sixteen tie. And I can just like the the narrative in that one, like first off, you have PSG who put together a team of Messi and Mbappe and Neymar for this to try and win the Champions League. They have not been impressive domestically. They have not been impressive all year, but is this a moment that they summon it? And then Real Madrid, like they've kind of quietly been going about their business for a while. They uh, they drew this weekend in La Liga, but they've been the best team, admittedly, in a down league this year. I think they're starting to put together a pretty solid team, and I I will favor them right now to beat Paris Saint-Germain in this round of 16 tie, and I think it would be a huge win for them just to kind of reestablish where they are 
in the European stage. When you you go back to how Man City dismantled them in in the bubble Champions League of 2020, and then last year not being able to advance very far either. Like Real Madrid can really announce themselves as back on the European stage with a round of 16 win over PSG. And I think they're going to do it. Like, I just don't believe in this PSG team. But man, every kick of that ball is significant, which is why you love the knockout rounds of the Champions League. Yeah, I can't wait. And part of this is due to the result of there not really being any title races in the major leagues except in Italy. This is the big one, right? This is UEFA Champions League, and you get a matchup like PSG-Real Madrid in particular, though I would say Inter-Liverpool should be really interesting as well. And we've also got four of the next five weeks with UEFA Champions League games, which I like the way they decided to stagger out the round of 16 games. They did that a few years ago so that we're actually able to see more of them because there's not so many of them happening at the same time, like in the group stage. And that only adds to it as well. And I'm just thinking of all the different storylines with Real Madrid PSG. Like I've asked myself, is it already possible that Kylian Mbappe would have announced a pre-contract signing with Real Madrid as he could have in January, but he decided not to because Real Madrid was playing PSG in the Champions League. And I don't know exactly what Mbappe is going to do. I certainly know what I see on El Chiringuito. They've been doing TikTok <laughs> for Mbappe coming to Real Madrid for months now. But that's another big storyline here. And uh, I'll tell you what, you know, we've seen PSG spend the world to try to win Champions League, and they haven't done it yet. And now they've got three of the biggest stars in the game. And yes, they're woefully unbalanced, but if they go another year and don't win it, same thing with Man City, who has spent the world to win Champions League and the champions and, and not done it. And I, I kind of, I, it, it's, it's almost a little bit like sporting justice in a sense to this point that they haven't won neither one of those teams, the Champions League, because it shows that you can't just spend your way to a big title, but I do feel like it could happen this year, and we'll see if if the other teams can find a way to prevent these petrodollar giants from doing it. Yeah, and you have you know other kind of blue blood teams that still look in decent shape uh, heading into this round. Uh, I mean, I, I think Liverpool is certainly a team that can compete for this title. If they're not, you know, that close in the Premier League, although they're still kind of a win and a game in hand away uh, from getting close to Man City. But Liverpool, I think, is a really good contender to win this competition, especially now that they've strengthened with Luis Diaz up front. I think Ajax are a team to be reckoned with in this competition. They've got uh, a round of 16 tie against Benfica, which will kick off next week. Um, maybe Juventus, with their turnaround, all of a sudden can maybe like be the surprise package like team that's not really that good domestically but has a really good Champions League run uh, I can't imagine either team uh, in the Atletico Man United tie uh, are, are going to be uh, in strong position to win the competition we just never know like in a, in a two-legged tie you just never know so um, I would say right now your favorites are Bayern Manchester City and Liverpool um, followed by Chelsea I think Chelsea's probably in their own category, kind of in that next level, and then you get into the PSGs, the UVs, and the Ajaxes. But um, I, I, I really uh, am, am fascinated by this next round of the competition. And Liverpool, who knows? They might even get through against Inter. Maybe Inter finally can shed some of their issues that they've had in Europe. I'm very excited, though. It's almost like the start of a new season. And by the way, we'll talk maybe next time about 
uh, MLS getting going again with CONCACAF Champions League midweek. But uh, very excited about what's happening in the soccer world. Chris, thanks as always for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Hanif Abdurraqib. Our guest now is Hanif Abdurraqib. He's a Columbus, Ohio native and New York Times bestselling author of books like Go Ahead in the Rain, A Little Devil in America, and the essay collection They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Last year, he was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's also, for our purposes, a soccer guy, a longtime fan of the Columbus crew who played soccer in college. Hanif, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No doubt. Thanks for having me, Grant. I really appreciate it. Lots to talk about here, but my very first question is, what's your original connection to the sport of soccer? Well, I mean, it's the crew. The crew was, you know, I came to love the crew before I even played the game. I was kind of late to the game as a player, but the crew came around 96, and this was when it was kind of a free-for-all here in terms of, you know, they're playing games in the old Ohio Stadium, um, or not the old Ohio Stadium, but they were playing the games in Ohio Stadium before the before the new, uh, the first Crew Stadium was built, and there was a, I was young, I was maybe twelve, and there was a kind of curiosity with the team because, you know, folks around knew the sport, and I knew folks who had somewhat of an affection for the sport, but it was also kind of like this curiosity, but they were easy team to root for early because McBride particularly. You know, he was kind of like a um, a real pleasure to watch. And in those early years, I mean, really, like Cunningham, Dante Washington, like those were my guys. But being kind of immersed in the crew early on at an early age uh, got me into playing soccer. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of took to it and very quickly got at least pretty good at it. I mean, I had some kind of – I had some natural ability that translated well. Speed, good balance – um, I was very like inst- my my instinctual movements were always really good. I just had these kind of all I needed to do kind of I arrived to the game with um, so many intangibles. All I needed to do was kind of learn the the, the basics, and uh, I picked those up pretty quickly. What kind of player were you? And and was there a stigma at all in those days? Because I remember. When I, that was right around the time I started in the 90s, my professional soccer journalism career. And there was still sort of this lingering stigma at the time about soccer in certain sections of the United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, and like a black American soccer player. I know you. I, I love that Friday D podcast you did. I know you talked to Clint, my homie Clint, about this, right. um, who has like much more to say about it than I do. But like, yeah, I mean, not only, you know, Columbus, Ohio's landlocked and and not um you know so much great soccer was coming out of the coastal region in that era and so many great players were coming out of the coastal regions in that era or at least places where it was a bit warmer where you could play kind of all year round this was a little bit before the indoor soccer boom uh Mm -hmm. which hit when i was in high school i think like late in the second half of my high school career and then into college that's when indoor like they were like five indoor soccer (laughs) facilities just in the central Ohio area, you know? Um, And you could play all the time because you could really only effectively play outside in Columbus for about two seasons, you know, summer and fall springs a little too wet too consistently. And so the pitches get just like, like messed up beyond 
a salvageable playing situation. Um, so there was some stigma about that, but also just, you know, I came up in an area where not a lot of people played soccer. Now, that isn't because of anything other than the fact that I came up in a neighborhood that was just so basketball rich. I played basketball too, but the neighborhood I came up in, I mean, like the great, some of the great high school basketball players coming out of Ohio in that era were in on the east side of Columbus. Mm -hmm. And the courts, the basketball courts on the east side of Columbus were like hollowed ground. And so it wasn't about a lack of anything other than interest because I came up in a neighborhood that was just a, a legacy basketball neighborhood. And um, an interesting thing for me was, you know, when I played select soccer, uh, it was really important for my dad to find a black a black coach because that was just so rare mm-hmm. in Central Ohio. You know, all the teams are kind of coming out of the suburbs, and um, all the coaches were these like um, largely white academy coaches who maybe just didn't have the kind of language or patience to deal with a young black kid in my case who was learning the game rapidly. Right, like who mostly needed time on the pitch more than anything, mm-hmm. and so I played. Uh, you know, I, I found a I found a coach, and I found a team. And as to what kind of player I was, I, you know, versatility was kind of my thing. I was a defender for much of my life, and I could kind of play anywhere in the defensive third up through the defensive midfield. Um, part of this was because I was fine with running i was good at pacing myself so many people i think believe that people who don't play and i know you know this people don't play soccer think you're just running all the time when the reality is if you have a team that is unified and effective you're kind of running in your own little box unless you're a box-to-box mid or or what have you um but I, i was versatile through the defensive third and up to the midfield and then occasionally i would play striker because i was very fast but i I had no real finishing ability in front of the net. <laughs> but I, I sometimes think, you know, if you're fast, that puts pressure on the back line so that the people who yeah. do have finishing ability can kind of sneak around, you know? And so I was more of a decoy, I was more of a decoy <laughs> when I played striker because it was kind of just like, you know, a defensive back line is just like, well, that guy's fast, so we got to track with this guy. And then maybe they, that, that speed alone can make them lose track of what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> around but I was I was not very good at finishing in front of the net um I was very good at like the kind of rebound type goals where if a goalie's already laid out and the net's open I can get to the ball faster than anyone else but I'm not gonna yeah I'm not gonna like dribble through a line and put a shot on goal with any kind of efficiency well before we started recording we were talking about Rafa Marquez of all people the Mexican legend and yeah. how you watched videos of him when you were playing were there any particular players at the time in Europe or elsewhere that you sort of really liked or modeled your game after or watched a lot of their stuff? Other than Rafa, you know, I watched, I was such a big, so I'm a big, I'm a Newcastle supporter now, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that that has that's not going well. Uh, <laughs> you could say that maybe it is, but like maybe actually a lot of it's not. <laughs> a lot of it's not. It's so funny because... You know, when it comes to supporting teams in the Premier League, like I could, no one would care if I woke up tomorrow and was like, well, you know, now I'm an Arsenal guy. (laughs) Um, But there is something about that loyalty. But 
But back then, I was such a big MLS consumer, and I was such a big watcher of the women's game. Because if okay. you remember, this was like the late 90s where like the women's game was having um, its real, another kind of resurgence. And I watched the midfielders all the time. I, I, there were not a ton of like, um, you know, in Columbus, it was easy to watch, you know, the great Frankie Haydock or, um, but I, I was, I always watched actually the people who I would be defending in real time to pick up tendencies. That's how I kind of fell in love with folks like Jeff Cunningham and Dante Washington. I loved watching Julie Foudy play, you mm -hmm. know, um, I, I loved, I particularly loved watching midfielders and strikers. I loved the reckless abandon of Brian McBride. And I knew so many folks who I was playing against were trying to model their games after these offensive players, you know, because it was what we had access to. This was a little bit before, this was before the dawn of the internet as we know it now. Mm -hmm. And so everyone was kind of watching folks that they had access to and um, modeling their games off of that access. And so uh, that's kind of what I was doing too, except for I was kind of reverse engineering that modeling and asking myself, okay, well, how would I defend if if Jeff Cunningham is running down the pitch at me full speed, how am I? How would I defend that? Mm -hmm. You know, how would I? What would I take away? Um, like the yeah, the why? I, it's so funny because in basketball, I was such a poor defender. It's just <laughs> and, and I remain a poor defender in basketball. But I think in soccer, what I love about it, and I know it's like this in basketball too, but there's something about the small movements of basketball that that require it's just in soccer i've made it so mental i made it such a mental thing of this is a game now of what i can take away from you and you conversely are thinking about what you can get over on me right and we're kind of you know there's no pick and roll we don't have to switch on to each other there, there's something really thrilling about that and so yeah i, I would watch these one-on-one -on -one matchups with with offensive players and that was kind of my thing too, but but Rafa Marquez was huge for me because um, anytime you see one player control a section of the field like that for so long in so many ways, you know, like I loved I loved watching uh, his Monaco tapes and, and the the stuff in Mexico because I think that's when you know his early mid career people like really feared going through those midfields, you know. Um, he made people work, and I think that's all you that's all you have to ask. The, the defensive midfield position is such a glamorous position, but I think it's a position that you can really strike some fear in folks because you're making them work. You're making them so, work so hard that they don't even want to go through you to get to the back line. And then when they get to that back line, they don't have anything left to give, you know? And so I just loved how hard he made people work to earn it. I want to ask you something about, you mentioned in a, a New Yorker story you wrote in 2017 and the quote is, if you are in love with soccer, your way of loving it must also speak to the way you love the world and all of its complications, end quote. I really like that. And I'm wondering what would you say is your way of loving soccer and how it connects to the way you love the world? Well, because soccer is such a it's a global sport unlike a lot of other global sports. And of course there are some on par with it, but I did not, even as a young kid, 
I understood soccer as a global sport, which wasn't happening for me on other levels. I don't, um, I did not think about basketball as a global sport, even in, well, I was about to say, even though I was watching the dream team, but I think in part because I watched the dream team just kind of like blitz through everyone. Poor Angola, it, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so it was like, well, I can't think about basketball as a global sport because no one's even close to, but because I viewed soccer as a global sport so early because of America's performance in these World Cups where it'd be like, I remember the first time I saw America in a World Cup, I forget which one it was, I was so foolish, where I was like, oh, you know, we just, we blow people out in in sports, this is what we do. And I remember watching the World Cup, I was like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) And that's when it clicked, where it's like, oh, this is, this is, and I was great, you know, I wasn't like, I was very young, but I remember being like, okay, this is because this game is different. This game is like, happening on a different level everywhere but here, right? right? But because of the global nature of it, it is also, um, and because of the level that it happens on countries that aren't America, um, and because of the spoils that come with that competitive level, it's also just ripe for corruption and it's ripe for exploitation in um, in ways that all sports are, but when you put in this kind of this full global ecosystem and global economy, um, it gets harder to ignore the realities of uh, soccer as a sport that can exploit and and do some real harm to not just the, the people adjacent to it, but actually the people in it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, young people too. This kind of I mean, you're well versed in this because you did the work on I do, but like the idea of the young phenom, right? And how that actually is a type of harm that, you know, the the global obsession with the phenom is is best represented, I think, through sport. And soccer has such a real opportunity um, for that infatuation to flourish and damage folks. Mm-hmm. Um, it, which that very unrealistic kind of infatuation, and so I think soccer has you know an individual toll, but it also has a global toll because there are entire economies that are um, that are at least in part built around what international clubs and international players can do for a place. Um, I profiled. I did a profile on Mo Salah in uh, before the last World Cup. Um, and it required me going both to Liverpool and then going to Cairo and to Nagrig, the village in Egypt where he's from. Mm-hmm. And the stark contrast in those places was so fascinating to me because Liverpool, of course, um, is is so richly historical that they kind of, it felt to me that they just viewed him as um, another brick in an already established legacy. It's like, okay, well, Mo Salah is, is great, singularly great, but he is maybe passing through here and then whenever his time here is done. This was also when there was a little bit of anxiety around whether or not he was going to stay mm-hmm. in Liverpool. This is kind of back then. And there was this tone of like, we'd love for him to stay, but if he, if he goes, you know, we're Liverpool. And right. that's just it. But in, in Cairo, especially in the Greek, in these, these villages in Egypt, it was kind of like, this is, he needs to thrive for as long as possible because for as long as he thrives, we thrive. And there are ways that that trickles back to us. And so it's now a necessity 
you know, and I'm not, I'm not ascribing any kind of negative connotation to that, right? Like on a much lesser scale, I'm from an area where like if one person makes it out, a lot of hopes hang on that person making it out. And so I get it. Um, but it was interesting to me to see how one player can hold the fortunes of a country in their palms. And that, uh, as much as I understand that, I do think that's a bit of a tenuous relationship. And so my love for the game does come with all those complications and, um, and, and these histories of, of um, you know, I recently watched, because I'm, I've been on the sports documentary kick, and I, re- I recently watched that two, the two Escobars documentary mm-hmm. that ESPN Fantastic. did like years and years and years ago. Um, it was one of the early 30 for 30s. Right. And, and I remember, and I'd watched it when it first came out, and I just hadn't seen it since, and I watched it again, and I came out of that really kind of like fascinated, but also like a little emotionally devastated. And I just, I don't know. All of this is to say I love the game a great deal, and I'm thankful for what the game continues to give me as someone who barely plays competitively anymore, but is still very immersed in it. Um, but all of that is, is knowing, um, that this sport, like any sport or like any, like anything that has the potential to drive an economy, you know, is ripe for corruption and heartbreak and, and actual harm laid upon people invested in it. You're well known for your music writing and criticism as well. Do you look at soccer in a similar way that you look at, say, music? Or is it different for you? Oh, I don't think it's much different. But also there's a, there's a musicality to the game that I actually think exists. Of course, we could do the sports metaphor where I talk about the poetics of moving the ball around. But I'm talking about like the actual work that happens in the, in the stadium. You know, okay. I, I have tickets. I get tickets to the crew every year and they're always in the fan section it's funny because i used to sneak into games right i used to sneak now i can admit that because they (laughs) they don't care but i used to sneak into crew games and just like get in wherever i could it used to be a lot easier now you know even before the new stadium like back when the crew got 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 good and whatnot i couldn't sneak anymore but it used to be used to be a breeze to sneak in pretty much Mm -hmm. they would just let anybody in you have to wait until like 20 minutes in the game and then no one would care. <laughs> um, but it's funny because as, as soon as I could afford them, I started getting sec- tickets in the Nordeca in the, in the fan section. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still do that, even though, you know, the crew now, now that there's like a little bit more local notoriety or another crew will be like, Oh, you want to sit in this? You want to sit in the, the box or you want to sit in the down by the field? It's like, no, 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 I'm in the fan section because the idea that, it, there's a chorus there, mm-hmm. right? Now, this, of course, did not originate with the crew, obviously. But what I love about watching games on TV, particularly like Premier League games, is that you can hear the swelling chorus from people who are all entrenched in one small space trying to do the best they can to propel their team forward. And it's not like it matters if you can sing or not. It's not even like it matters if you know all of the words to a chant. One of my favorite things, one of my absolute favorite things about going to crew games and and sitting in kind of the cauldron of that fan section is watching the people who are definitely new there, who are easy Mm -hmm. to spot, you know? Um, Because they're they're easy to spot because they sit. You know, they Mm -hmm. sit for the first, they sit down, and then after a while they're like, 
Well, they kind of take stock of everything. It's like, okay, everyone else is standing up. And if I want to see, I'm going to have to stand up. And then watching them kind of slowly get into the understanding of this is a place where volume is required all the time. And watching them kind of learn the chants by proximity. That There's a beauty to that. There's a musicality to that. You know, there's a real, um, it's corny in a way. It's corny that, you know, in the crew stadium and in MLS stadiums all over the, the country, there are these chants that are just kind of like reverse engineered from Premier League chants or like reverse engineered from 80s pop songs or whatever. <laughs> but it's it's kind of a really beautiful thing. And so uh, for me, when I think about the game, I think about the chorus of, of fandom. I think about the rich chorus and choir uh, that exists in the stands. And there's a musicality to that that is more compelling to me than any kind of metaphor I could make about ball movement as musicality. No, I like that. Do you have any particular favorite crew memories or favorite? You mentioned some players, coaches, anything oh, yeah, like that? I mean, listen, both, both cups, first of all, um, but the 08 one especially, because um, I got to be in the stadium for that. And that was like, that was life-changing. I also remember, you know, it's funny, some of my favorite crew goals are either of well they are of consequence but there was that there was the one the one crew goal that will that of re, in recent memory that always stick out to me was the will trap one against orlando that that one that he just ripped from like 40 yards out because mm-hmm. that was that was kind of in the it was i feel like crew fans only remember that goal but that game was pretty disappointing overall and it was another, dis- they had a run of games that felt a little disappointing. And I, they should have been up on Orlando, I felt like, by a lot. And I remember when it was coming down to it, I was like, man, I'm gonna get out of I'm getting out of here. Like, I'm, you know, because that, that goal came at the death, like really at the death. And I had a moment where it's like, I'm just, I'm gonna get to my car, you know, this is a draw, whatever. And I remember the minute I set foot outside of the stadium, I heard the crowd, you know, the, at the old stadium, you could like feel the ground shaking when people lost it. And I could feel, I could heard the crowd. I was like, oh man. And I, you know, as, as I was walking my car, I was like, all right, I missed the game winning goal, but it was probably not that nice of a goal. And then I got in my car and watched the video and I was like, oh God, <laughs> I missed like one of the great crew goals of all time. But yeah, I mean, the, the Kai Kamara goal that um, back in 2000 and, um, Someone had to fact check me on this. I want to say it was 2015 or 16, the header that got them past Montreal. I mean, that was so singularly great. Um, the Justin Merrim playoff goal that came with like nine seconds into the game. You know, so many of my memories are goal related, but those early games too, where you could tell the team was just feeling feeling their way around. I have such a great affection for those early crew teams. You know, like late 90s early 2000s teams that were sometimes competitive sometimes not but always kind of uh delightfully chaotic like some i mean to be fair that wasn't unique to them i think so many of the mls teams were kind of like figuring themselves out at that point um and they were just kind of messy it wasn't it wasn't always good soccer some but it was always entertaining soccer and there were personalities. I mean, talk about someone like Frankie Haydick. I mean, like that's a personality. The yeah. crew for a while had like one of the great personalities in, um, in the game, and in and up and through up and through the two thousands, I those teams meant the world to me. You know, Skeletto and, and Chad Marshall. Like these were people who 
were great not only because of what they did on the pitch, but because I really admired them. You could just see them around, you know. Mm-hmm. It was the first time, or maybe it's the second time, you know, when I was coming up, there was a, a women's basketball team here uh, called the Columbus Quest. They played in um, they played in a league that is that is now long defunct, uh, but it was the ABL, yeah, the American Basketball League, mm-hmm. and Katie Smith played for them, and um, you would see, you know, in those games were like no one, you know, you could go to them for pretty much no money, and I would see them around, but it was different with the crew because I was a little older, and there was a consistency. It was like, this team is here to stay, and um, so I, I loved those dudes, but yeah, the, I mean, nothing to me tops the 08, the 08, the first cup. Uh, the second one, don't get me wrong, the second one is is... The second one was great because it felt um, like the crew had been counted out from the beginning of the season, mm-hmm. and they were continually counted out. Um, and to see that triumph and the way they won that last cup—I mean, just like pure domination from whistle to whistle—it was it was incredible to watch. But that first one was just like the elation I felt. I didn't sleep that night. I didn't sleep at all. You know, it was like. It was incredible. I can still see in my head because I was in the stadium too. The the pass to Hadick for the goal. Oh yeah, that Hadick <laughs> oh, goal. Man. You know the thing about that it was like you don't have to do anything else. You know it's it's he he's obviously a great player and an icon in Columbus, but like he's always going to have that mm-hmm. because of his performance there. And, and he's one of my favorite crew players of all time. I, I do think that in terms of my favorite crew players of all time. It's, it's an ever shifting thing. Um, <laughs> because it was, it was Jeff Cunningham and then it was Frankie and then it was, uh, Iguain. I mean, I loved, I loved Iguain because he was, it, I was still thrilled to see the news of him coming back and retiring as a, right. as a member of the crew because he was like, um, and I know that he did not always rub his teammates the right way. And I know that he, is a bit he was a bit enigmatic and but i just he was small I, i'm a, not a tall i'm not a tall person and i was always like a pretty one of the smaller people on the pitch but he just played so hard all the time and it one of the things that that kind of let me down was um that it felt like the teams he was kind of at the center of got really close to glory and never really achieved it mm. but and then like achieved it right after he left you know one of those <laughs> things where it's like Right after he left, they, they kind of rose to the top. I, I want to ask you something, because I used to cover basketball and soccer, and I've only been soccer full-time since 2009. Um, but when I used to cover basketball, people would say, oh, American basketball players, and this is about early 2000s, American basketball players play too much street ball yeah. And that's a bad thing. And that's why the U.S. was not winning the gold medal at the 2004 Olympics. So this is before right. like the more recent dream team started winning again. But at the same time, when I was covering soccer, people would say about American players, they don't play in the streets like they do in Brazil. And that's why American soccer isn't good right. enough. And but I was know. just like, what, <laughs> what, which is better? Like, I, I'm hearing one thing in one sport and one thing in another sport. Wait, what, what's your sense of all that? But you know who did come up playing like that is Clint Dempsey. Yep. And people like to say that, but Clint Dempsey's play was not always celebrated. Like, Clint Dempsey's play was sometimes derided by how 
unorthodox he was and how how much of kind of a scrapper he was. Um, but that's how he grew up playing. And I, Clint Dempsey is, is without question one of my favorite players, one of my favorite athletes of all time. Without question, one of my favorite soccer players of all time. Probably my favorite American soccer player of all time, without question. Um, because he had that, because his game was unorthodox, he saw the, and because he saw the pitch differently. You know, I came up playing soccer, um, not for my club, but for my school, was a Columbus City High School. And this is a school in, in Columbus City League schools had that same stigma attached. It was like, well, these kids grew up playing in the street. These kids came up because we didn't have the resources or the whatever else that the suburban schools had that dominate the state tournaments. But it is a question of then learning the how to maneuver the little bit of space you have well. And that's what I see in Clint Dempsey's game, right? Is that he was so good at just making the most out of whatever small space he had to operate in. And that meant that he, what, he didn't always look as fluid as someone like Landon Donovan. Um, he, his runs weren't always as crisp, right? But you know who I want in the box? Like if the ball is bouncing around in the box, I want Clint Dempsey there. You know, you like you know who I want if like there's two defenders closing in and and you got to get by. I want Clint Dempsey there because he will just invent something out of nothing. And that to me is kind of the spirit of um, it, it translates to that basketball, that quote unquote street ball, that pejor- that like so called pejorative that was mostly like projected upon black players. It's that same thing because it's it's about making space out of little little pockets of space. Like I I grew up playing short sided games of soccer with goals that were literal cardboard boxes anchored down by whatever, rocks, right? In these small spaces. And so naturally one of my skills is quick lateral movement, short sprints, these kind of mm-hmm. things. Does that mean you know, I joked about not being able to finish well, and some of that is because of how I how I came up playing the game. But I'll tell you what: if you, uh, I, I I'll find a way to finish if the ball's bouncing around in the box, you know. <laughs> and so, it was weird. I remember because I remember that narrative of like, well, American soccer players don't play out in the streets. But then when the rise of Clint Dempsey happened, so many people there were people who were deriding his game and the mm-hmm. way he played because it didn't look clean, and it, it didn't look. Um, you know, I, I always <laughs> that goal he scored against England in the World Cup, right? Like, yeah. clearly, that's like not a goal's a goal. Listen, a goal's a goal. <laughs> uh, and so, like, that's my, you know, I remember, um, one of my earliest coaches, all the teams I played on had great defenses, and, um, you know, sometimes a, a bad goal would trickle in and, we would be, you know, we'd be very proud of ourselves and be like, oh, you didn't give up any clean goals, as we would call them. We didn't give up any good goals. My coach was like, the hell's wrong? A goal's a goal. And so I'm very much of the belief that a goal's a goal. But let's just say Clint Dempsey's goal versus England was not like, um, it was guided by angels that, that were maybe not of his command. But when he scored that goal, I was like, of course that's the kind of goal he scored on this stage. Like, of course it is. 
you know, one that's just like this kind of, he was all out of, he was really off balance. And I remember he did this like random turnaround and just kind of let the thing go. Um, <laughs> that went in. I feel like even he was surprised. And this oh, isn't yeah. say that, this isn't say that Clint hasn't had some like, pheno- like literally phenomenal goals, but the goals of his that I love the best are the kind of messy ones, because I think that's, he has that impulse of like, you have to score no matter what you have to score no matter what's in front of you. And, and he's not as interested in aesthetics. And so I feel like there is a school of American soccer thought that is so interested in aesthetic, but is also interested in what it takes to become good enough to compete. And I think those two things are at odds sometimes because I don't really care about pretty goals, you know? I, I like seeing them if they happen, you know, but don't, don't get me wrong, I like I like watching them. But I, I love players who are gritty and who are gonna get in there and and mess things up for folks. And, and what I was saying earlier about speed and instincts, like even when Clint Dempsey wasn't scoring, he was messing things up in the back line against the back line to make it so that other folks could score. And those are the scariest players. Like mm. those are the attackers that I was most worried about. I never found myself really worried about attackers who could who could dribble well. Because if again, if it's a game of like, what can I take away from you? It's like, well, I can always push you to the sideline. You can have fun dribbling out by the sideline, you know? <laughs> Um, like I know how I can maneuver you, but if it's a player whose whole purpose is how can I get back here and just mess things up for all of you? How can I take you, how can I get you thinking about if I'm on sides or not? How can I get you thinking about what's going to happen? Not after the first shot, but after the shot, after the shot, when the ball's bouncing around that kind of stuff. And so Clint Dempsey had that instinct. And this is not to say that there are not other American attackers I have not loved in my life. I mean, you know, um, there are great, there are great many American attackers I love, but none, none more than Clint Dempsey because of how he played. A couple more questions here with Hanif Abdurraki. Really appreciate this. I'm enjoying the conversation. Um, you mentioned earlier our common friend Clint Smith, yeah, another massively accomplished writer, former soccer player. Have you both talked about soccer together much over oh, of the years? Course. Absolutely. He's a big Arsenal guy, and so you know. Uh, he sometimes revels in that and sometimes feels pain. But we had, <laughs> as, as we all do, but we've had, we had parallel um, experiences. We both played in college. We played different positions. He's, he was a striker, I believe, full-time, yeah. all-the-time striker. Um, you know, it's interesting because I actually think Clint has a lot more fascinating things to say about the game than I do when it comes to like um, race and the historical impact of race on American soccer. Um, but most of what we talk about is just our our time and experience actually playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, I miss, like, I, I if I could do, like, a pickup game of uh, of writers and, and other folks who have played, it would be great. It's it's funny, though, because weirdly, I think I'm maybe in, in what might be the, like, best physical shape of my adult life. <laughs> But my desire is at an all-time low. And so it's this thing where it's like, sure, I can get up in the morning and run like seven miles uh, because my brain is wired to do that right now. But after that, if you're like, you want to go play some, you want to go kick the ball around? It's like, are you kidding? Absolutely not. And so it's, 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 it's this thing where my mind, and I feel like maybe Clint shares this, the mind, the mind and body are at odds because it's like, I feel like I could actually play. I can't play a full ninety right now, but I could give a four. I could play a, a hard forty-five. Yeah. I didn't. I need to be subbed out at halftime, but I could play a, a full forty-five. <laughs> but like, do I want to? 
absolutely not. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I think these things, it was like reversed uh, when I was like in my early 20s. I was like, I want to go out and play a full 45, but my body can't make it through that. And um, and so I'm, I'm forever at odds. And I, I, I feel like maybe Clint is in the same in the same world as I am. But yeah, we, we talk about the game a bit. Um, mostly our memories playing because... Um, yeah, I mean, overall, the game is pretty far behind. I, I play pickup basketball now more than I play um, pickup soccer. But I, I do think I would make a good coach. I don't have the time to coach now, but I, I do think I would make a good coach because I, because I was late to the game and because I had because of the lateness to the game, I had to consume so much of it very mm-hmm. quickly and then parse through that consumption um, in ways that were beneficial both beneficial to me and not um and i had to like study the game everywhere even when i was playing fifa as a kid i had to study the game through the lens of playing fifa i don't know Mm -hmm. so yeah the short answer is yeah clinton and i clinton and i (laughs) chop it up about soccer often i'll ask you about this because you mentioned wanting to coach at some point because i i remember following you on twitter and in 2020 you had this tweet thread about how you were asked to coach a high school soccer oh, team yes. in Columbus and you were that interested, saga. you were interested and it didn't end up happening. Would you be willing to share the story? Yeah. So, um, yeah, in 2020, there was a, there's a school on the East side. I won't name them obviously, even though the school's not at fault at all. Um, but that asked me to coach for a season. Um, it was just going to be like a season thing. Their coach had, um, right before the season started, their, their, the coach they had in place, um, one of his parents had, had passed away and he had to take leave from the team. And so the team was, was kind of in, in a tough spot. And this was right when summer conditioning started. And they were like, we just need a coach. Um, can you help us out? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll help out for a season. Of course. Um, at this point I had the time, like, you know, it was, um, it was 2020 in the fall of 2020. And so there was some anxiety around uh, COVID soccer season, all that, but I had the time and they were, we were pretty safe about it. And so I'd said I'd help out now in order to coach in Ohio, you have to be, you know, you have to get like registered and go through all the, all the things that the Ohio high school department of education requires. So I did that. I took the CPR test. I took the, I watched all the videos all the like what to do videos and all of that. Um, and I submitted my, I submitted my coaching packet requirement things, which involved me disclosing that in my early twenties, I had been arrested a few times. You know, I was like, well, you know, here were, here are my charges. And, you know, by this point they were, um, from anywhere between 12 and 18 years ago. And so I was like, you know, these were over a decade ago and haven't really been in trouble since. And I don't think that should matter, but anyway, I know you need to have this information. So here's this information. Um, and the Ohio department of education, um, took that and it, and it, and then I didn't hear anything for a while and the season's coming up. And I was like, I need to know if I'm coaching this team or not. You know, if, if I don't get this certification, then I can't coach this team. And, and what's actually happening is this is doing a disservice to the players because they need a coach. Um, And so the Ohio Department of Education gets back with me and says, um, well, we have to do a hearing. Like we have to have a hearing about these charges because right now you're ineligible to coach. And I said, this feels weird to me because, um, you know, 
I, I don't think the age of these charges should matter, but these charges are very old. But it sounds like, sure, let's do a hearing. And their whole thing was like, okay, we'll set a hearing date and, and um, we'll like get that going. And I didn't hear from them at all. And the season's now started and I can't coach. And so the team is like floating without a coach. And I email them back and I say, listen, y'all, we need to get this hearing scheduled. You said you would send me paperwork to do this hearing and I haven't heard anything. Uh, and they said, well, we're looking at your charges and you're just not eligible. You're just not eligible to coach. Um, and I said, oh, you say that, but you also offered a hearing. So I would like to do a hearing. Um, and they said, okay, well, you know, we'll send you the paperwork. Paperwork never came. At this point, I, I, I told the, the team, you gotta find a different coach. Uh, and the school was, you know, heartbroken and very understanding. And, you know, the athletic director of the school was speaking to the Department of Education on my behalf because he knew me a little bit, all these kind of things. Um, and I didn't hear anything from the Department of Education for months and months and months. And in March of 2021, just out of curiosity, I emailed again and was like, hey, so you said it would be this amount of time. It's been like seven months, eight months, and I haven't gotten paperwork for a hearing. So, you know, still would like to do it. You know, the, the coaching job is done, but I got some, you know, I got some things I'd like to say to some folks. So, you know, I would love to do this. And they were like, well, you know, unless you can show us that your criminal record's been expunged and you can show us that you've um, lived the life of whatever, like not being in trouble for a certain amount of time or whatever. And I was like, all right, I I'm just not with the shit. Like I'm not with this thing where it's like, I have to prove that I'm quote unquote okay now. Uh, and so I left it alone because at that point it was like, I don't really trust what you're asking me nor why you're asking it of me. It has to be said that around this time, I was doing some local organizing with Columbus City School students who wanted to get police out of schools, right? And I was like a notable person doing that organizing. I was a person speaking at rallies and I was a person. Um, and so it, it dawned on me at that point, like maybe these are things are connected. Uh, and then to top to the, the quote unquote resolution was after the MacArthur was announced and um, I was in both local and national press and all that, the literal week after, I get an email from the Ohio Department of Education that says, we've approved your coaching certificate. I didn't, to be clear, I hadn't been in contact with them for months. I didn't ask for approval. Um, and when I emailed them, I was like, this is funny. Can you explain to me what happened? They just said, oh, well, the rules changed. And so you're eligible now. And I was kind of like, yeah, I bet they did. I bet the rules, yeah, I bet, I'm sure they did. Uh, you I'm know. laughing, but I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I mean, I, when I got that email, I was also, I mean, it was infuriating, but I was also laughing. And so now I'm eligible to coach in Columbus if I want to. Uh, but, and I, you know, if I, if the time arose and the right situation arose, I would make the time for it. Like very truly, I would make the time for it. If like my old high school was like, we need a coach or something like that, I would make it work. Um, but I was really soured and heartbroken by that whole experience because, um, you know, I'm also someone who works with folks who are who were previously incarcerated and who come out into the world. I, I and I, I'm, I'm passionate about that because I was someone who was previously incarcerated and re-entered the world and um, very quickly learned how challenging that is. Um, and to be clear, like I was not even incarcerated all that long, and so um, it was disheartening for me because that these these small and great denials build up in, in the, the way that incarceration strips away humanity continues 
when someone is no longer incarcerated because the cultural impulse is to continually punish all these things. Um, and so that, that was a, that was a real downer for me. And it really soured me on the experience. Now I will say that like in terms of individual educators and schools and everyone is great in Ohio, like the Ohio department of education um, is a separate body than like the school. Right. And so, um, I do want to stress that because teachers and educators and administrators in Ohio and central Ohio specifically have been so good to me in my work and all that for like years and years and years and years before I wrote books that anyone cared about. These folks were so good to me and remained so good to me and uh, I would do anything for them, which is why, you know, if the right thing came up in a, in a school was like, we really need a coach and these kids are eager to learn the game, I would probably do it because I, I care that much about young folks in the, in the central Ohio. Last question for you. Will you, how much of the world cup will you watch the men's world cup later this year? I, I feel so conflicted about it, but I know I'm probably going to watch one of those things where it's like, I feel really conflicted about it. I feel really conflicted about every corner of it, but I think when it comes down to it, I'll probably watch. I, I, I just, I really, Man, I love the World Cup. I it's one of those things that I just I love it so much. I mean, I loved Afcon, like I watched Africa Cup of Nations. I love these kinds of things, you know. Um, I love the Euro Cup. I love I love even more than like Champions League stuff, you know. Mm. I love the kind of national slash international slash continental pursuit that exists in these kind of tournaments. And so, um, and I always play things by ear. We'll see how I feel. I, I do feel like I will probably want to watch the World Cup, and then maybe if I feel a little gross watching it, I'll tap out. But I do love it. I, I admit. I mean, it's a to be and to be fair. Like the, the World Cup is always a source of conflict for me. It's not just this year, um, but it has been a source of conflict for me at least the last three times out. But I, I do love it, and um, you know. I, I love the storylines of the World Cup. I love the theatrics of the World Cup. I love the players who emerge during the World Cup, you know? Mm. Um, I can think about Jaime Rodriguez, you know, who just like had that World Cup like a couple of times and it's just like, that's the kind of thing I love to see. Um, I'm, a, I'm a writer and, and, and so that means I love narrative, I love stories and I love how sports offers opportunities for both individual and collective narratives to emerge. And I think the World Cup allows for that like few other things and so complications aside i do keep returning to it and i imagine i'll return to it this year um i also think this year is a bit more intriguing than past years it feels like there's some parody involved yeah. that that um that that will be enticing for me um and so yeah i think i'll be at the doorstep of it and, and we'll see how i feel this time around hanif abdurakib is a new york times best-selling author and a macarthur award winner Thanks so much for coming on the show. No doubt. Wait, do you, are you allowed to support a team or do you like not? <laughs> are you not allowed to talk about like individual no, teams? No, like, like it's funny because I almost have an easy out because I'm American. So my childhood team like was the Kansas City Comets indoor team. Yeah. In the 80s. And my if I have a team that I say that I support, it's Boca Juniors because I've, I've spent a lot of time in Argentina over the years. I lived there for three months in 95, did my college thesis down there, traveled with the Boca fans. And journalistically, I don't really write about Boca ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have an easy out as opposed to like my British friends who like grew up Arsenal fans and now cover Arsenal. And they and now can't like talk about it. 
don't want to put it out there publicly yet. Yeah. Did you were you around when the Wizards hit Casey? So yes, I. I it, first, the Wiz, by the way, until the Wiz, they had to course. change until they yes. had to change the name. I used <laughs> yes, to have. They did. <laughs> I, I, I I had to move. My first year in New York was. 96 and I had a Wiz logo on my a magnet on my fridge. Then they changed the name and I thought, oh, I'll keep the Wiz logo on my fridge. And so I was into the Wizards and like I just am amazed Kansas City, my hometown, remains the only place I think where MLS has turned around an apathetic situation toward the MLS team and completely changed it into like soccer and, and MLS is big in Kansas yeah. City. And it, you took an original team and did that, rebranded. So I'm, I think that's awesome. I love the stadium there. I love going back and, and, I, and the fact that Saturday nights are soccer nights in Kansas City. You know, you go to see an MLS game. But uh, so I, I do feel something there. I have to you know, write about them from time to time. And so I keep that in mind. We had Peter Vermees, the coach on the podcast not too long ago, but um, I haven't had to deal too much with, you know, personal feelings or anyone accusing me of anything. And in fact, like sometimes the the Kansas City people, like fans have gotten on me on certain things. So I, I take that as a badge of honor, I guess. That's real. <laughs> No doubt. I had to ask. I, I meant to ask that earlier. Thanks for indulging me. Thanks for the conversation. That was awesome. No doubt. Thank you so much, Grant. I love your work, and, and I'm glad that I get to. Uh, I'm glad I get to consume it in as many ways as possible. As as, a, as someone who who loves the game and uh, is always looking to continue that love. Thank you for your work. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Hanif Abdurraqib as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>